I came out of the bus nearby the president's office. I stand there looking at the building. I could not go inside, man. Venuste Kubimana is an entrepreneur, the founder of the International Transformation Foundation. Through his initiatives, he has helped over 7,000 students and 120,000 residents gain access to water. It's a real honor to have him on the show. Thank you to Venuste for joining us and to Open Design Africa for inviting us to collaborate on this five-part series under their theme, Africa Rising. Head to opendesignafrica.org for more information about them and nairobidesignweek.com to check out the other episodes. Hi, Venuste. Such a pleasure. Hey, Adrian. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. First of all, thank you. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show and to have this conversation with you. I think when I saw the list of speakers for Open Design Africa Festival and uh, saw your name and then discovered what you do and the incredible impact that your work has, I knew that we really wanted to have a chat. Thank you for the invitation. It's going to be nice talking to you. Well, I've been fortunate enough to learn about you through some of my research, but maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself. Basically, my name is Venuste Kubgimana. I'm from Rwanda, and I work mostly with young people to design these solutions to help our communities' development. Thank you. I've seen that your dream is to create a youth system that would provide jobs, opportunities, and individual development for people in communities. So how has that dream impacted your path? My work really started in Kenya. For me, uh, like when I was growing up, I lost almost everybody in my family. So really after the genocide, like for me, really the, the difficult part happened after the genocide. I was about eight years old when the genocide happened. But then after that, my mom passed away in 1999. That's when I was joining high school. I would go to school, study like three hours, go get a job, work come pay school fees and support my siblings. And then you run away from school, go do any odd job you can get and save some money. During holiday, you do not go home. You have to go find something to do. That kind of life really gave me a lifestyle to dream of. I got a chance to meet various young people from mostly East African countries. So that's how we decided to set up a foundation to help young people in our communities develop. So since then, the dream just keep growing, keep growing every day. We design one thing and it grows into something that blow up our mind and keep working to make it much available to everyone. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think I wanted to save this question for later, but actually, you know, nobody picks their journey through life and their story. So what's the best advice you have to those who want to see a brighter side of their situation in life and want to see a brighter future? Uh, for me, you got to be hopeful for tomorrow and do the best you could. Because in the end, if you do not do the best you could, it's unlikely anything to happen. Because always there's so many things you can do around you. Do not neglect it because it's so small. But when you do it, really so much happens. That's really for me, the advice I took. And uh, I keep trying the best I could. Have you got any stories of maybe where you've shown proactivity or kind of taken a leap and that's led you into other opportunities that have opened up for you. I'm going to give you an example of since I was a kid. I grew up in a village, really deep, small village. Even when now I look back, a couple of days ago, I talked to my wife. How can I be here? 
me, because my addiction was taking over the cows, we had the one cow, and when I come back, I go to school. Back then, we were like rotating to go to school. You go, if you go in the morning, today, tomorrow you go in the afternoon. I remember really when uh, like we were out there in the, in the field with the cows, it used to be around 11 a.m., so you can see up in the sky, that's when the planes will pass, you know, like passing my neighborhood. When they fly, you can see like in the back of the plane, there is like, they leave a kind of white uh, thing. You can say, oh, that's the plane, the roads the planes use. So for me, what happened is every single opportunity that come to me, I cook it. I do not take myself as um, just a little village boy. The first really biggest uh, opportunity I got after high school, I came to Kigali. Somehow I got into a youth organization and the director gave me a position. I was there just as a volunteer. I remember I was teaching English and the computer to other young people. It was like a free project. Then he said, I want you to lead our youth. Then I had no idea what to do. I remember the first mission, we had a bigger office in Nairobi. He went to Nairobi. In the meeting, they discussed, want to organize a youth national conference. He asked me, I have to make a meeting with the president so they can discuss like bilateral cooperation, the government. He made me prepare the documents, go to the president's office. I came out of the bus nearby the president's office. I stand there looking at the building. I could not go inside, man. I just go scared. Me going to the president's office, I went back home. <laughs> because I could not go inside. When I got there, I told everyone, no, they are not working today. The next day I took a really leap of faith and uh, went back. The president recommended that we meet the Minister of Youth and the whole thing really happened. During that conference, it was my first time for me to be in a newspaper. So really my confidence was so high after that moment. That's good. Thank you for that story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing example. On that theme, and one of the themes for Open Design Africa Festival this year is small is massive. So what does small is massive mean to you? When I think about really small is massive, I'm really kind of drawn into social challenges in our communities. My contribution is too small to make any difference. But that's not true. The little step you make, little contribution you can make, just the, you know, the simple thing you can do but you think can I make any difference? That's really for me what I will call small is a massive. A little thing really, you don't even think to struggle to do it. Sometimes it's just, you know, picking up a trash on the street. That's a little small thing that looks like doesn't make any difference. That's really for me what small is a massive. But that little thing make a bigger impact to it. Someone can be passing by and see you. Someone can just, oh, that is something. For me, that's how I think small is a massive, that doing the little thing that really it's within your own reach, something you're not going to struggle to do it. You know, like um, nowadays when we think of, oh, we're going to make a difference in our community, we think about it. I need so much money to invest in my community. I'm going to give an example, Adrian. Probably even we got to meet now because uh, when we started our foundation, we designed various solutions to our community. One of the solutions we do, we call a water kiosk at the school. We try to, because based on our little village's experience, in a village when the kids have uh, to go to school, but before they go to school, they have to go fetch water for their families from rivers or from creeks, somewhere there is water also, which is not clean. They have to talk about six, 10 kilometers before they go to school. Because of this, sometimes they miss school and they end up dropping out of the school. 
So what we did was, oh, what can we do? What can we do to make sure that kids are able to go to school and the village have a clean water? So we came up with this idea. It's really small. Our idea was just, oh, let's give just a village of water and the kids can bring water from school. So we set up a kiosk at the school. Kids come to school with their water containers. After school, they bring water to their houses. It's one trip where I was just school home and they can study. There is a lot of other things associated with it to develop the kids' education, the business side of it. But that's what the simple idea. Setting up this route is the cheapest thing really you can ever do. The community are able to do this by themselves because when you work with them, I can come and dig trenches for free. I can do this, I can do that. But when everybody contributes just a little bit, something they can do without really going into their pocket becomes so cheap and so easy for everyone. So for me, understanding and uh, recognizing the small action we can do within our own reach, they go a wrong way to make a bigger difference. For me, that's small is a massive. Thank you. I'd love to know more about your work and let's talk more about International Transformation Foundation and, and really how that started and now into what you've just mentioned, you know, join the pipe and how all those projects have come along. Uh, I'd love to know more about it. You know, with ITF, International Transformation, it has been an adventure, you know. <laughs> I left home December 14th, 2009. That's when I took a bus from Kigali to Nairobi. Early morning around 5 a.m., they used to live at 5 a.m. That's when I left Kigali to Nairobi. And I got to Nairobi on the 15th. It's 24 hours uh, right? So the thing is, when I got to Nairobi, I had already like other young people, we had this idea. So let's start a foundation to help all we can. So we end up like deciding, let's start in Kenya. We did this basic calculations. If we do this, we do that. We are more positioned to start in, in Kenya than in Kigali or than Dar es Salaam. When I got to Kenya, me and my colleague Bonnie realized when you go to the registry, hey, you need the ex other people. We are supposed to be minimum of three people for us to go through the registration process. Uh-huh. And the things we convinced other friends to join, and um, we said like that. A really interesting part, I was 22, 23. I was the oldest, then my colleagues were 21, 22, and just full of ourselves. That's really the truth. <laughs> and so we want to register international organization, want to do this and that. When we want to register, they just look at us and these kids are thinking. But they were just, okay, because we were just so stubborn, just, okay, sign here, sign this, sign this, sign this, bring this, bring this, to bring all of those. And the last thing we did was, uh, because we were requesting international organization, we had to go through kind of like a vetting process, like, a, I would say like a spy group, I would say someone from Kenya spy department had to interview us. I think it, the whole process took about six months. So into the third or fourth month, that's when they called us for this kind of a meeting. And when he say, this is in regards to your application, come meet us, this building Nairobi. It's called Bakris Plaza Building Nairobi. That's not a government office, you know? So what's happening? Is it, are they going to ask us for corruption? We are kind of like scared what's going to happen. When we went, um, this guy really, he... Really gave us really, for sure it was more for like, now when I think about it, it was more like background check who we are. And then um, he would ask us, what do you want to do? We want to do this. We want to open to do social to Kenya, Rwanda, everywhere. We had no money. Really when we left the interview, oh, we're not going to make it. 
a couple of days he called us. I'm recommending you guys, you're just so enthusiastic for, about the future. I'm recommending you for the register of the society to give you the registration. So we get the registration like on the 25th August. That's when the whole thing like madness started. I think in my pocket, I was remaining about like $120. And my colleagues were now four people. One was working in Nakumati kitchen, mm-hmm. you know? His salary, I'm sorry to him, probably he will not want me to mention, was 8,000 Kenya shilling. That's the money we started managing a foundation, $120 and his 8,000. And um, so what we did was, okay, if we want to succeed, we're going to start in a nice building in a city center. So we used the money we have. So okay, let's rent an office, a really nice one. We're going to be in a fresh building in the middle of the city because our idea was to center our operations around the year. We wanted to work with young people to make a difference, but we want to start with the college and university. Our idea was, if I have something as a young person, I can use to help another young person who has nothing. So first, we, we thought a couple more like advocacy and uh, recruit young people. So we want to be where young people can easily join us, especially those in a college. Somehow we're, we're right to be in the city center because that's where many colleges and universities. It was nearby University of Nairobi. So we go in a university, but the office was so expensive in the city center. It was really, I think, one of the best ideas at the moment. As we grow, we realize, oh, not do this. The first thing we did, we worked with a youth debate. was about like, trying to, the argument, is it better to be an employee or an employer? That really ignited the thinking in many young people and uh, many companies joined us and they really sponsored us. And we was the one, we one big event about debating about this issue in Nairobi. So when many companies joined us, it was really, when we saw what happened, we could not go back because I remember really like the main award was, um, I think Arabia Airline was offering a return ticket to Shadjur, the winner of the debate. For me, I've never been on a plane. My colleagues never been on a plane. Really, I would really, just to be honest with all of us, are we giving this award to someone we don't even know or should we take it ourselves? Really, organization is, is based on the character of the people, you know? That's when we made the line, hey, this should be the defining moment for us. Did we start this to help others or ourselves? We really thought about the, oh man, I want to go on a plane. That was our best opportunities. But then um, really when we draw a line, who we want to be and who really the line should be. And uh, say, if the company sponsor this for that, it's going to be specific for that. That's how I think our future got to be shaped. Since then, our operations have been based on that kind of character of integrity and accountability. Since then, really, more people joined us. We, say, we cannot go back now. People now have a trust in us. We have to build on that and keep thinking ahead. The more young people joined us, we designing this and that, and here we are now. So really, that's really the big only story about idea of how we started. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. So when did you first encounter design and how has it impacted your thinking when it comes to design for change? It was based on like growing up in rural communities and, and then going, uh, when I got to Kenya, we would travel in many villages. We were having youth networks in different communities, so we would go visit them. Like the idea was, you know, like to talk and more of like uh, having a workshop with just for youth alone. But then the more you go to a village, for me, the more I go from a village, I was from a village in Rwanda, then I go to a village in Kenya. Our life is the same. You still see the kids carrying water on their head. 
you see the young person cannot get a job, that's when it's up. We're gonna change this. We say, okay, how can we do this? If we have this, what can we do about it? So that's when we start thinking about solutions specifically for problem in a community. First was education, first was uh, employment, first was water. We come up with those solutions based on each community because most of them, they are really the same challenges. Mm, thank you. So on those innovations you've come up with, it's not just the models, it's the water system, the paying system, the wider social system, the, the products. So how do these get implemented across the communities and what are some of the differences that you've seen, that you've learned about and you've had to consider between different communities? In regards to a water kiosk at the school, I said before, it's a solution for rural communities because mostly when you go to a rural community, there is a, like a similarity in terms of how they have water and how they live. You will find uh, there is a, like minimum four to six kilometers to get to water. You will find most of their rivers. Nobody has like piped water. In these villages, the water duties are for children and women which means kids get up early in the morning, go down the valley, get water, come wash your feet, go to school. If it's so far away, you're not gonna be able to study. The water kiosk was mainly to resolve this issue. Uh-huh. And a kid go to school, because what we realize, education is provided, really there is a probability that the community will be okay. If like, the new generation of the young people go to school and go to graduate, there's a probability that the community will be much better than it is today. So we want to resolve this issue, but then when you look into it deeply, there is so many factors that can affect each other. We came up with the water kiosk at the school. Mostly we connect water to the nearby water pipeline. You will find normally in our countries, nearby all the main highways, there is a government pipeline. Connecting to this pipeline bring to the village is so expensive. But nobody does it because even the governments, what they do, they connect to the pipes where there's probably that the villages will pay for it. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. So what we come up with was, how do we ask the villages? What can we do? What can they do to make sure this happens? Because when you go to some communities, you also will find some NGOs, they just came and helped with the water. But the really one question, you, one problem you'll find is common in these water projects. Nobody thought of sustainability. If something breaks down, nobody's there to fix it. Yeah, yeah. They have some money, but they don't have money to worry about the fixing the water pump. But how do we resolve this? So what we did was how do you make a project, a community project? We help them set up a community project that they can feel that it's our, we have to take care of it. Exactly. You know, in the villages, when you find a school, community school, that's where everybody meets, that's like their own city center. With the water kiosk at the school, we have to work with the community residents because we set up in a community contest. So before we build the kiosk, normally the school gives us like an expression of interest. He would like to set up a kiosk. The first one, we approached the school, but now it's not the same because the network has grown. We get people just getting in touch with us. Meet the school, hey, this is what we have. If you set up the kiosk at the school, you can have a clean water and uh, you can send water to the community residents. The other fact is that the kids at the school, they run the kiosk because it's a lot cheaper for the school not to spend any money for someone running the kiosk. But at the same time, it's good for the kids when they run the kiosk. 
they get to run at the basic, you know that right now when you go to school, you are required to go for internship. So they could they just have their own free internship at the school. That's really cool. Yeah. Really, you would find like the kids in the primary school, six, seven, they know how to do a business report. Basic concept laws. So they also, you know, if I were for maybe five shillings, 20 shillings, wow. he knows how to do change. You know, he's not going to mess up with the change. That was the main point because anybody from the community can come to buy water from the kiosk. There is a teacher somehow supervising them once in a while to see if they are doing right. But then uh, the other cool fact about water kiosk is uh, the community involvement because setting up the kiosk, the community have to be involved. They decide the water price. That was the main part to campaign about this. You need the clean water. They know the challenge they are facing, you know. Uh-huh. But when you come up with this idea, that everybody welcomes it. There's something like you were mentioning about Africa design, design it to improve, uh-huh. you know. It's a design that reflects each other's needs. When the need is met, I want to be involved. So the villagers get involved. So, but when you explain to them, hey, for you guys to be able to maintain this, you need to do this. So that's the cool side about when we think about how do we maintain this? Because some villages, they don't even have money to buy water. So the villages think among themselves. If we sell water, if the school sells us water at maybe five shillings, everybody in our village can afford it. But how about so and so? They don't even have any money at all. Yeah. You know, in a village, you say, oh, um, he can come clean the school compound once in a while, but still get water. So those kind of ways to maintain the system, the school still be able to make some money in case the station or anything breaks down. That's really something for us that make the water kiosk community and sustainable for us. Mm. So two things really come to mind. First is I really wanted to find out how you get those water pumps to last 100 years because I saw that was a claim somewhere. And the second is, let's talk about the positive reinforcement, because that's kind of clear across all of your projects. A lot of it is, you know, come to school and you'll get free water and those sorts of examples. So I'll ask you, what have you learned from that sort of approach? And uh, what are some practical ways to incorporate it into our own lives? But first, the water pump as well. Um, The main character of a water kiosk is like a pipe tap station, it has a own filtering system inside. When we started the water kiosk, we did not have these components, you know? So we got to find out during the pipe a little later in the phase of the project. Mm-hmm. So we're just in, you know, the normal village brines and somehow, somewhere, I don't, we get in touch with the general pipe, say, hey, we produce this and that. General pipe is a company in Netherlands, so they produce water products, they design mm-hmm. really human centered products, you know, and for the future sustainability. They use normal stuff. They, I think it's made from steel. The lifetime is almost like forever, 100 years. It doesn't have to break it in the process. So our partnership, they provide this tap station. They provide us uh, water bottles. They provide for us hand washing facilities. Our project also have what we call like a jelly cut trolley. You know, you have to carry a jelly cut on your head. So with the jelly cut, you can just push for the kids. It's easier, less physical. So this uh, partnership within the pipe really helps us a lot, making the project more sustainable and more easier for us. Partnership with Jennifer, we started, I think, in 2013, I guess. Now we become more for like a family. When you set up the kiosk in the village, the kids at the school, the teachers need free drinking water, you know? People who wants to bring a, like a big jelly cans to fetch water to use at home, that's the people who buy water at the kiosk. But this type of is set on a side on the kiosk for people to get free drinking water in a village. 
So that's really for us the, the component of tap station and the, the whole thing at the, the kiosk. Mm, thank you. Mm. And what about the positive reinforcement? How do you manage to put that into all of your projects and get that across to people? You know, there is uh, so many things out there. When you design something, that's what we're talking about designing to include. When you design a solution, especially for social problems, there is um, something anybody can add in. Mm -hmm. Because there is much we can do around, but there is so much more we can do together. So when you flexible, especially when you talk about partnerships, there is really being flexible with the people and being able to see the needs ahead of myself. That's really helped us a lot to see being in other people's shoes, like what can be improved. I think looking ahead also for the future. Some people are better than us. Mm. People can say something you haven't seen before. Like if I'm with you in some situation, you're able to see something I'm not even probably thinking about. So and when you combine what I think and what you see, the result is amazing. Mm -hmm. That's for me like the togetherness, working, uh, make sure that there is a togetherness, being able to work with everybody and get their inputs and put their inputs. But yeah, doesn't mean necessarily like imposing my inputs to anybody, working on the spirit of greater good, I would say, for everyone. Mm, mm, I totally agree. Yeah. We like to say it's, yeah, making the pie bigger for everyone, right? Yeah, yeah. I truly believe every person in the world has something to teach us, right? Yeah. Tell me about some of the other projects that you do as well. You've got, you know, Jijenge Fund, right? Yeah. Microfinancing for youth and the Reflect Experiment Capture. That was really cool as well. Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to know about some of these things. You know, as we grow as an organization, when we started about this microfinancing, ITF now is we shape our focus more like specific. That's really the thing about growth. The more you grow, the more you become wiser and experienced. As we grow as an organization, we started like focusing our project on a specific response in the community. So when we started this microfinancing, I think in 2015, I would say. So what we started with actually was what we used to call one SRAM 100 computers project. Uh, I'm sorry to say, but we really did fail with that one. We did not succeed. So what happened is we want to provide, based on experience with the young people in Eastern Nairobi SRAMs, we wanted to give young people training about entrepreneurship, like developing a business, being able to, to design and uh, implement successful computer-based business. We ran it for like two to three years, but we did not really reach the point we wanted, so we ended up closing the project. But the part of the project was we give the training, like six months training to youth groups, and then finance them with the computers to start the business, like a basic uh, startup kit for them to start. Uh, we did not succeed. We ended up closing it. That was our first microfinancing project tour. Uh -huh. But then in 2016, one of our members working in a supermarket, an attendant in a supermarket, uh -huh. the mindset we do in our organization is like we inspire each other. We have more than what is in front of us, try to work harder. So on a side hustle, he was uh, rearing chickens in his house. When he lost his job at the supermarket, he was still like an early startup with his chicken and rearing project. He could not have money to buy food for his chicken. So otherwise, if we did not get money, his chickens going to die. Mm -hmm. He came to the office, hey, so you guys told me if you start a business, I would be much better. But now my job is gone. 
now my chickens are going to go. So that's when we came up with this Jijenga fund for our members. If they run a small business, they need something to help them, you know, like along the way, they can access this fund. Really cool. This is what this fund is about, helping our members. So that, you know, even from us, we run along the way, we're going to go into trouble. We will need some support. There's people who go into genuine trouble like Gilbert, this guy who's getting chicken. There was no other way for him. So this could have been the end for him. Mm. Some years later, we did a documentary about his project. We really went and we met his mom. He said, because of that, our family survived the hunger. Me growing up in a village, sometimes we did not have a sort to put in our food. So your mom would say, hey, yeah. go to the neighbors, ask for some. In the village, I used to go and get like, you know, banana, banana leaves and they put some for you. And you come holding it really tight because if you fall on the ground, of things are done. So when we went to this house, to, we were doing an interview with the Gilbert's family, how yeah. the business had helped them. She said, Gilbert now is able to provide us with the chumbi, chumbi is sold. Yeah. Really, for me, those kind of impact. Gilbert now is here with his own business. Everybody's so good. That's really how we set this microfinancing to support our members to be able to engage in productive businesses. Amazing. I love every one of those businesses has at least one, but many stories attached to it, of course. Yeah, there are so much in our stories. Sure. With the REC projects, you say that like Deep of Faith is we grew, we get to partner with the European Union. There is a, this uh, program, the Youth Development. And um, our main point was to help young people, you know, explore their mindset, what they, we can do. Because this, with the partnership with the European Union, we are able to send young people into Europe, different Asia, different countries. Like it's more of like exchange training programs. Personally, I was able to grow when uh, I was working back in one day with other youth organization, they sent me to different countries. I think the first place I went was, I came to Kenya and then went to Burundi. So with the European Union, we, we, come, we designed so many youth training base, like capacity building program. That's what is it about. Oh. And then we do like young social innovators development. We do, we have a, I think now we have like four, three projects. I think a couple of weeks ago, got other three projects, two projects approved with European Union financing. So with the uh, reflect and experiment, you have been really cool, especially during this pandemic period, really, because what REC does, it's explore violence and bullying amongst young people. And for us, what we're working on, exploring, making videos, making of real issues, home-based violence, oh. documenting. So during this coronavirus, we had issues in many families, especially young people. Uh-huh. So we are documenting this experience of young people, young marriages, what they are going through right now, the violence that happened. We are just, when you set up the project, just, oh, we're going to just do the violence coverage and make the film with young people. But then the pandemic happened. It became really intense. So when we document that, we are able to learn from each other and grow our marriages as young people. So what are some of the outputs that you've seen? You know, it's an experimental art project, right? So what are some of the things that have surprised you and been outputs from it? For me, uh, it's the involvement of young people. You know, right now I'm here, but uh, my team in Nairobi, we are all young people, most of them like 23, 24. Sure. For me, I really get to cry, really, how they do this, how they go to capture this, the real life sort of young people going through. It's, it gave me hope. One thing I was scared of was the future. What if really something doesn't go right and what doesn't work? 
but really for me, the fact that young people were able to identify the problems we go through and find the only solutions, that for me, that's the key learning, being able to really identify that real issue in a, in a household and bring it to right in a movie, that's for me really key learning that young people will hold the key to the future. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. It's always much more exciting to be working with young people. And I've always found it exciting. I think since I was a student, I realized it was an exciting time to be a student. And then once you graduate and you get to work with students again, you realize, wow, there's so much potential and creativity. So you've mentioned some failures like the One Slum 100 computers, or as you described it, a failure. And you've mentioned a few other challenges that you've faced. So perhaps that one or another challenge that you've faced that's taught you something. I never went to school, you know, to learn how to run an organization. As we grow, we face different challenges today and tomorrow. I think One Slum is only one project that I would say we failed to bring to the highest we want to be. But um, for me, something I have been learning is really more about leadership, you know, managing a team, getting some focus, getting a few things done. Even some of my team members will tell you, the guy I was five years ago, not the same guy I'm today, in terms of like business, getting things done. This I was so harsh because <laughs> I did not know how to do it. For us, all of us, just, you know, like, I just won't be able to make a difference, you know, but you don't know how. So... The more you do this, the more you run, oh, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. Like one of my staff, she say I was so harsh on them because I was like babysitting everybody. <laughs> I had no really about leadership and managing. I was not so good. I would uh, micromanage almost everything. So which is really for me, I have been the key, even if our success over the last couple of years, I've been really more successful than we ever be. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was the key lesson, really micromanaging everybody, just give them their space. Really the key for me, one of my biggest learning in leadership. Yeah. Okay. You also do speaking engagements, right? So how has that kind of experience as a speaker been like for you? And where are you trying to take it? Yeah, Adrian, I'm not a good speaker, but uh, what I do enjoy is sharing what I have been going through. I'm not a wise person, really the truth. I do believe that the experience we have had, someone can learn something from it. For me, letting go of like babysitting everybody offices, I get free time and I don't know what to do when I'm free. <laughs> I know based on my experience, somewhere someone is there like being in my position. What I was in that position when I was eight, when I was 14, when I was 20, going in those steps. So for me, just put it out there, anybody can apply to their own situation, probably they would be successful than I was. That's really my motivation. Amazing. So coming back to the question I asked you at the beginning of, you know, making your own journey um, and talking about fulfilling, you say that, you know, you believe in people fulfilling their full potential. You set an uh, amazing, wonderful example to others with that. So how would you advise people can live to their fullest potential? I do believe in a God. I do believe we human beings were created to make this world a better place. That's really the basic. Because if I'm not making it best at this where I am for you to stay there comfortable than I was, then probably I'm not supposed to be there. You can imagine you are standing somewhere, then you get thrown maybe sitting in your feet and you, don't, you do not remove it for someone else to stand there comfortably. It's not okay. 
Of course, to the best of your knowledge at the moment, you know, when you think about it later or someone comes later, you do not regret about it. That's for me the fulfilling that I feel only to live. But when you do something and then tomorrow when you come, that was uh, not right. It's not okay. Because that when you live a life of regrets, you know, it's not good. Because you spend much more on regrets than happiness. Because the more you do the best you could in the moment, the more happier you are, the more successful you can be. For me, that's really have been the case. Not because I planned to be happy every day. I will tell the truth. But the more I do the best I could in front of me, in the end, it's fulfilling. Oh. Adrian, when we started... Everything is so difficult. Right now, in office in Rwanda, they are struggling. So when it comes to me, oh man, it's my fault. I started this thing. Why did I have to start this problem to everybody? Now we have a network of over 400 young people working with us. So when there's a problem, I thought, oh, it's my fault. Why did we even have to start this? But then the more you go, you do what you can in front of you. When it works, it motivates you actually to keep going. You do not want to stop. That's motivating. What are your plans then? I know, like you said, things are tough for the coming future. Perhaps how have you been impacted? But also, you know, for the coming months and years, what's ITF's plans and what will we be getting involved? I would say we are both mainly looking into rural communities and urban. Like we are doing a lot of things to help our communities be the best they could be. In practical ways, we are looking into expansion. We had so much plans when the pandemic happened. Right now, we only have a base in Rwanda and Kenya. We are looking into opening in the Gambia, West Africa. Like right now in the US, we are trying also to open a, another office here. Yeah, so we are trying to do that expansion. But um, in the same time, trying to give you a vision we see the communities which are sustainable and self-sufficient. So we are halfway designing a, what we call like a youth center that we want to build in a lot of villages, like to have a lot of innovation center for young villages. That's really one of our biggest dreams. So going into maybe next five years or three years, we don't know how, when we're gonna make that happen, but that's one of the biggest one. Because the thing is, nobody's thinking about the villages. How are our villages going to be like um, cities, like having the basic infrastructure? need those innovations to happen in the villages too. So we have this crazy idea to set up a youth innovation centers in the villages, in the rural communities. Uh-huh. So that's really the bigger picture we are working on. We are monitoring very closely the situation in the Gambia right now as soon as things get better. Hopefully we're going to start the office in the Gambia. Uh-huh. It's going to happen this year with how things are going, but Pretty soon we'll be open in the Gambia, doing our projects over there. And I'm here in the U.S. trying to open an office here. But I'm waiting. The future will be much better than it is today for us. But right now it's tough. I believe you. I believe you. I mean, you've impacted just through the water projects. It's over 7,000 school kids and 120,000 in communities, right? Yeah, right now, that's like, I think by the end of last year, we hit about 12 kiosks. And right now, there is a three in Kenya and one in Rwanda. We should be launching by the end of this month. Normally, our kiosk, we have an average of, in Kenya, average of five, 500 kids benefiting. That's about 1,500 in Kenya. And about, in Rwanda, normally, it's about eight, seven to 800 students. So we are really looking at numbers going forward. The water kiosks have been really uh, making an impact. But you know, in Nairobi, we have a solution we're doing in the urban communities. Now you can drink free water in the city center. 
with the DSAPs, during the pipe tap station we, we use, we work with the Nairobi County government. Mm -hmm. There is a central park, Uhuru Park. We put water stations. People can drink water in Nairobi for free. Mm. We are looking also expanding that whole the whole neighborhood, the city center in like strategic area, bus stations where people meet. Can only buy water bottles in Nairobi. What about young people, the poor people who do not have fifty shillings to buy water in the city? When you look at what lifestyle, we have money to buy water like that every day. Not everybody. Right now, we are working between the pipe to distribute this reusable water bottle in Nairobi. Then we set up a desktop station. So if you have your water bottle in, with you, there's a place you can feed and uh -huh. you want water in the city. So that's all one of other projects you're working in urban cities. There's also Michuki Park has just reopened in Nairobi, so that could be a good one for these. It would be so exciting to have these fountains around Nairobi, really. Yeah, yeah. I've seen them before, and they're beautiful. But, you know, actually, that's the thing, like, we dream, we have this kind of ideas, and this, like, so far we have set up two in Nairobi. It's not easy, really. That's the thing about the designing solutions. It's not easy process, but fulfilling, like you say. You do the first one, you want to do the next one, the next, and being able to be patient enough to wait for the, all the resources to, for everything to happen. And in my dream, I want to see like every broken Nairobi have, you can just leave it and go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, something I'd love to talk to you about more is obviously plastic waste as well. And yeah. we've talked about dropping trash and something that came to mind. I remember I once was in Poland and I'm, I'm from Poland originally and I yeah. snuck into a friend's sociology lecture and the lecturer was talking about what does it mean to be a true patriot? And he was presenting the case that any true patriot would never drop litter because if you care for your country, of course, why would you destroy it? So it was really good to touch on that as well. Is there anything that we've missed and you'd love to talk about? Yeah. Yeah, please tell me. Or any questions for the community as well? Yeah, what about the plastic waste, what I can add on? That's one of the part of our campaign to access clean water. We are doing that in a way that during the pipe is producing sustainable water bottle right now, actually making a water bottle made from sugarcane tree. So we have this product that are environmental free like they're sustainable. So we do now, like our campaign in Kenya, in Rwanda, where we are now, we are teaching the young generation about sustainability, about plastic. So what we do now, when even we open this session, I was saying in Europa, students join us, we clean up, we take out the trash from the streets. So we work on people to clean up this garbage and mm -hmm. hand people the usable water bottles. Our older generations, they had no idea about this, really. People are learning about Tablets could be better in the next few years. Start generation and grow and teach their own offsprings. Yeah, so I'm really thankful that you got me to join and uh, just learn from you. Thank you so much. I'd love to know more in future. I'll ask for a link to the sugarcane water bottle. Where can our listeners connect with you online? I have a personal website, venustekubimana.net, my website. Also, you can connect directly with ITF, Search International Transformation Foundation. It's available everywhere. We are, I'm available to get in touch with everybody. I'm open. I'm always available for anything. <laughs> That's the thing I say. Sometimes it's not doable, but I do the best to respond to anything and share what learn from everyone.
Well, thank you for that spirit and thank you for sharing with me today and with us. And have a great time in the US and I'll see you during Open Design Africa Festival in a bit. Thank you and you have a good one too. Cheers, bye. Thank you to Venuste for joining us and to Open Design Africa for collaborating with us on this five-part series. You can check out the previous episodes at NairobiDesignWeek.com. This episode was produced by Brian of Jarateng Sound Studios. Find him at Luna Da Vinci on Instagram. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can find us at NairobiDesignWeek.com. Thank you for tuning in. Please leave a review or share this episode with someone who will love it. You can subscribe to Africa Design on all major podcast platforms. That's Africa with a K.